The homework assignment that I used to give to couples a lot was that I would have them make a cares list. And I think I probably got this from another one of my colleagues way back when, where one person would write down the 10 things that make them feel cared about. And then the other person would write down the 10 things that make them feel cared about and loved. And then you exchange lists. And for a period of time, like if you were in therapy with me, I would give you this as a homework assignment. And then for two weeks, you have to look at that list and do something off your partner's list every day. Because what happens oftentimes is we forget that what makes us feel cared about isn't what really works for the other person. And when you start shifting and thinking about what you're offering, that can really help and foster connection. Welcome to Flusterclux with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about how to manage those tricky emotions that show up in all families. Serious stuff without being too serious. I'm your co-host, Robin, and I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a Flusterclux, and I'm here to help you find your way. And I'll even tell you what to do and what to say. Lynn, today we're doing a second episode on loneliness. Last week, we talked about kids and teens. And this week, we're going to talk about adults. And I got to tell you, all week, I've been thinking about that stat that you read about how many adults identify as lonely, which means this is a really common, pervasive cultural problem. Right. It's over 60%. The stat, it's significant. And I think it's a lot more than people think. If we were to just do a random poll and say, how many adults do you think would identify themselves as lonely? I think that the actual number is very surprising to people. Yeah. Well, I think in this episode, it'll be fun to unpack some language and the way people interpret it too. Because I think that we always talk about connection. And I think that when people don't feel connected, they will very likely feel lonely. So it's sort of like an assessment of how connected do we feel or have we historically felt? As we were talking about in our last loneliness episode, COVID was all about isolation and it really increased the loneliness that people felt. And it's interesting because I wonder how much of that has sort of carried over. I was just listening to this conversation on some podcast, of course, that I don't remember, about the difference in offices now that COVID has moved through and the change in office environments and what people are missing in that office atmosphere. And a lot of people are like, oh, I'm so glad I don't have to commute and I'm so glad I don't have to go into an office, et cetera, et cetera. But then you look at the statistics about how many people meet their friends and meet their spouses at work. It's a pretty significant amount of adult interaction that has been removed. Right. It is kind of weird to think about the fact that so many 20-somethings, you know, from 25 to 30, they're having their early career experiences working from home, isolated with a computer. Right. If I think back to my early working, I was working in an inpatient psychiatry unit. But nonetheless, I mean, we did things afterwards. We went for walks at lunch. I had a group of people who we had breakfast with before we went to work. And all of that is really not happening on a regular basis. 
Yeah. In my early 20s, I was working in New York City and we had a very strong friend culture where it was all about work and your work friends and your friends, but your work friends were who you spent a vast majority of your time with. Yeah. Do you know how is has business travel gone back to what it was? I would think not. I mean, when I travel, the planes are always packed. But think of those business trips that you took or the time that you spent getting from one place to another with somebody in the car. I think of going to conferences with some of my colleagues where you were driving in the car and you were chatting about things and sharing things about your life and getting to know each other. All of that is really impeded now, I think. We were talking about this and you mentioned that maybe in the mental health space, that's an industry or a field where many people adapted very well to being virtual, but other industries that I'm connected to, their business travels through the roof because everyone's desperate for it. So again, I think that that depends on what you do. We adapted very well to being virtual in terms of being able to do our jobs, but a lot of therapists got rid of their offices. And so they are fully doing telehealth now, which means that people who worked in agencies or people who shared office space, like I work in my office by myself now, but I used to share office space with people. I had an office and my friend Gail had the office. And then there were some people who made dentures who had some other office space in our suite. That was interesting. But there were people around. You were engaging with people. You were having conversations and you were doing things together. You were eating lunch together. You were, like I said, going on walks together, traveling. It really is an interesting time. When we think of loneliness now, I still am not sure that the episode we will discuss today would ultimately be that different if we had recorded this episode in 2019. Yes, I think you're right. Because remember, as I talked about in the previous episode, loneliness is really defined as a perception. So there's situational loneliness where you move to a new city, you're living by yourself, you've gone through some sort of big change and you haven't made friends yet, and you're definitely lonely because you don't know people where you are. But the more chronic sort of pervasive and probably more damaging type of loneliness is when you're around people, you just don't connect with them. And you have a perception that other people are connecting and engaging in relationships in a way that you can't or a way that you don't know how to. That's actually what I thought we could start with because I think there are these patterns, these thought patterns that really contribute. So the one that you just mentioned That's such a classic pattern of like the parent in the carpool line. All the other parents are getting together and socializing, but me. So there's that exclusionary kind of dynamic. I also think that there's a dynamic where like nobody gets me. So you could be around people, but your sense of humor or what you're interested in, it just falls flat. So you could be in an environment where you feel kind of lonely because nobody gets me. And then what's another kind of pattern that people could repeat? Well, similar to that is what we used to refer to as that you believe that you are terminally unique. Nobody gets you, but you don't really give anybody a chance to get you. So it's almost this like you pull yourself back and you say, it's not like you're stepping in and trying and then people are like, oh, she's weird or "Oh, she's not funny. You don't even try because you're sure that everybody is different from you. And it almost is sort of like, there aren't people who think the way I think. There aren't people who are interested in doing the things that I'm interested in doing. And you don't give it a chance, which is how this loneliness thing tends to cycle 
Because if you don't go out and have any experiences to dispute your perceptions, you and your perceptions hang out by yourself. And like we say in the depression world, right, you are not the best person to talk to you about you. So if you're lonely, you and your loneliness are not going to really get out there and take some risks and be vulnerable and share. You and your loneliness are going to stay alone. And that's one of the ways that it becomes so problematic. Well, and that's also where we have a lot of people have those sticky thoughts. I don't know if thinking of what you call them, I don't know if this is repetitive, negative thinking, that might be something different. But it's like, if you sort of go to that place, because you can be in a school or in a family where other people just seem different than you. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the things that when we talk about when adults are lonely, when they live adult lives that are filled with loneliness. And as I said before, it's one of the hardest things for me to deal with as a therapist. It is just so heartbreaking to me. But that oftentimes they will give me a history, a family history of feeling really lonely in their family. So not feeling connected to other people in their family not having a loving relationship with parents, even in a big family where there's a lot of kids and it doesn't mean that there's just, you know, one parent who's working all the time and you're home by yourself, but not really able to feel connected in your family is a really strong pattern that predicts continuing to feel disconnected as an adult. Let's unpack that after this break. I really have to pay attention to hydrating properly. I work out a lot. I talk all the time, as you know. I am pretty active and I don't drink enough water. So I'm constantly thinking about how it is that I am going to hydrate in the best way possible. And I'll tell you, if my water has a little bit of flavor, it's so much easier for me. And if I can get those electrolytes, if I can get more bang for my buck, it's just so much better. I have been using liquid IV. I put it into a huge glass. I put it into the refrigerator. It's cold. It's very tasty. I've been putting it in my water bottle when I go to the gym. The packaging is so convenient. I actually look forward to drinking it, which is not something that comes naturally to me. I love the lemon-lime flavor. They've got a sugar-free option that is really great. So I think that if you're somebody like me that has a difficult time getting in the amount of hydration that you need for your body, Liquid IV is a great option. One stick, 16 ounces of water, it hydrates better than water alone. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, and it doesn't have all that sugar. It doesn't have artificial sweeteners. Eight vitamins and nutrients just for your everyday wellness. It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. However you hydrate, grab your liquid IV, hydration multiplier, sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code FLUSTER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code FLUSTER at liquidiv.com. 
If you are a mom who's trying to keep your calendar organized, keep your family's appointments where they need to be, then I'll tell you, the Skylight Calendar is a product that you ought to check out. You know how it is. Running a household can be pure chaos and it can be so stressful. This is why you need to check out the Skylight Calendar. It is going to make your life easier, mom. It really is. The Skylight Calendar is a smart touchscreen calendar and organizer for all your chores, groceries, to-do lists and a great way to manage appointments to make sure they never overlap and they're never missed. It helps keep busy households on track so families can get time back for moments that really matter. The Skylight Calendar is so easy to use and to set up. It's not going to frustrate you. You're going to be able to get it going within minutes. It syncs events from other family calendars, including Google, Apple, Outlook. You can add events directly using the touch screen or with the free Skylight mobile app. Updates to linked calendars will automatically appear on the Skylight calendar at home. So no more worrying that you guys are going to forget something. No more cluttered paper calendars. It shows all family events together in one spot. The events are color-coded so you can easily see what everyone has going on each week. When the calendar's not in use, you can turn it into a digital picture frame. It's 100% satisfaction guaranteed. If you don't love the Skylight calendar, you'll receive a full refund. They offer a 120-day money-back guarantee and free returns. You can't beat it. I think the feature that I love most is the collaborative way we can all add to the grocery list. And then when I'm ready to place an online order, whether I'm at home or my office, I have that list and there's no more items that we forget. So as a special time-limited offer for our listeners, get 15% off your purchase of a Skylight calendar when you go to skylightcal.com slash flusterclucks. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-C-A-L dot com slash flusterclucks. Mother's Day is coming right up, so order today to get 15% off your purchase at skylightcal.com slash flusterclucks. Okay, we're back. So you just described this pattern that we could have as children with our families, and then those children grow up to be lonely adults. So this is like a two-part, right? Because you're both a parent possibly listening, thinking of what you can do for your kids, which we talked about last week as well, but also you're thinking of your own loneliness too. How do you recognize that you have those patterns and stop them or pivot or What do you do? Well, one of the things that happens when a child feels lonely and disconnected in a family, it generally means that they aren't really given room to express the way they feel, that when they do express the way they feel or when they talk about what they like or what they don't like, or they're just sharing who they are, that they're generally either ignored or shut down. So there's not a lot of room for that kind of, you know, what we might call vulnerability. There's not a lot of room for that emotional connection. You know, I mean, it used to be long ago, right? Children are supposed to be seen and not heard. I think we've come a long way since then. But there are still adults that I talk to now where in their family, if they had a different opinion, if they were struggling with something, if they were feeling very sad about something, that there wasn't room for that. 
it's not necessarily, and don't think that this is a family that's like, oh, horribly abusive and neglectful. Sometimes that was just kind of the norm in the family. You know, the example I give all the time, which is a pretty dramatic one, is that when Jane Fonda's mother died by suicide, nobody ever mentioned it to her again. So your pet dies and you come home and nobody talks about it, or you were really sad about a breakup and somebody says, well, you know what? There are other fish in the sea. One of the things that connects us to people is when you're talking to somebody and they actually validate and understand and support and comfort you in your big, uncomfortable feelings. So if you say, I'm really sad about this, and somebody says, well, I mean, that's nothing to be sad about. But if you're really sad about something and a person in your family, an adult says, you know what? I totally get it. Like, I totally understand why you're sad. And thank you for sharing that with me. Yeah, I'm so glad you're telling me about that. When you don't have practice emotionally connecting to people and also just being vulnerable, like showing people how you feel inside, if that's shut down, you don't learn how to do that and you're not going to take that risk going forward. So then you get people who sort of have friendships that might be superficial Maybe they have some fine relationships at work or activities, but they feel lonely because there's not that emotional connection. So you hang out with this person and you work with them, or maybe you play golf with them, or maybe you go on business trips with them. And then you find out after knowing them for 10 years that they have a child with special needs, or you find out that they just went through a divorce, or you found out that their mom died of cancer when they were five and they went and lived with their uncle. And that has happened to me where I'm just, I am sort of taken aback by how little that person shared, but it's usually because they weren't given permission to do that, or they did it and it didn't work and they shut it down. As a parent, how would you rate that kitchen table dynamic where what would you say is a range of healthy that you like hearing that a family does? The good, the bad, and the ugly, right? So I want them to be playful. I want them to talk about things. The one thing we want kids to be able to share things they're proud about without being given, you know, that lecture of sort of like, well, who do you think you are? you're too big for your britches, that shuts kids down. So at the kitchen table, I want silliness. I want playfulness. I want shared celebration for things that happen. And then I also want kids to have room at the dinner table to talk about what was difficult during the day. I want a parent to be able to say, oh God, that sounds terrible. How did you manage that? Or, oh, I can totally relate to that. So we want a range of emotions where they're sort of offering what is often called a bid for connection. So they're offering something to you and you are then accepting it and then offering them something back to them. And so that's what I want to happen at the dinner table. I think some listeners could hear this and say, I think I have this with my kids, but I don't have this with my partner, right? I mean, there's such a range. There's a range of like, Ideally, you want that communication happening in all directions. But since this is more on adults too, and I know couples therapy isn't what you do per se, but at the same time, if you feel like you aren't going through the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, in a vulnerable way with your partner, how do you sort of try and start? Well, I was actually listening to a, a talk by my friend Michelle, who is 
one of the country's leading couples therapists, but how it is that people express their love and express their connection and what works and what doesn't. And when you have a big incompatibility in a relationship, that's when people feel lonely. So say, for example, the way that you really feel loved and cared about is when somebody brings you gifts. They show up with something like, oh, I thought you'd want this or whatever. My husband went to a bakery this morning and I was like dealing with all this stressful stuff. And he said, I'm going to get you a scone. And I was like, no, no, don't get me a scone. And then I was on a meeting and he comes tiptoeing in with a scone and he just puts it on the desk (laughs) next to me, right? I said like, don't bring me a scone. And he was like, I'm still going to bring you a scone. And it was just a sweet little gesture, right? So that was his bid for connection. And so when you think about that in a relationship, the way we feel lonely is there's something that you want There's something that you need that makes you feel connection and the other person doesn't give it to you. The homework assignment that I used to give to couples a lot was that I would have them make a cares list. And I think I probably got this from another one of my colleagues way back when, where one person would write down the 10 things that make them feel cared about. And then the other person would write down the 10 things that make them feel cared about and loved. And then you exchange lists. And for a period of time, like if you were in therapy with me, I would give you this as a homework assignment. And then for two weeks, you have to look at that list and do something off your partner's list every day. Because what happens oftentimes is we forget that what makes us feel cared about isn't what really works for the other person. And when you start shifting and thinking about what you're offering, that can really help and foster connection. Most people in a couple, have a different love language. I mean, I'm sure there are some couples where they both had the same thing. But I think it's also helpful to take a quiz like that and understand the pattern because even though ideally the one person in the relationship consciously makes an effort to show love in the way they know their partner likes receiving it, Mm -hmm. sometimes you just show the love the way you feel sort of programmed. And in turn, when you recognize, so acts of service is not my love language, but your brother and my husband, he's programmed for acts of service. It's a big deal when I recognize that was an act of service. And even though that's not my love language, I always say that act of service, whatever it was he did, (laughs) was a loving statement, wasn't it? And I appreciate that. Is that what you say to him? Do you say thank you for that act of service? Well, I think I say... (laughs) I'm just teasing you. (laughs) That was an awesome act of service, fella. (laughs) Well, I like, you know, sometimes it could seem like it's just a chore, but no, it was like, it was a loving thing. And I think that then in turn, acknowledging that and making sure that all those acts matter. And I would say outside of couples, I have a brother that he and I don't have a relationship the way you do with my husband. And I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast. (laughs) But there was a real... Yeah, the odds are really low. So I will say this. He's someone who doesn't show up very easily on the emotional front. And I'm all about like, let's be authentically connected. And I recognized he's not going to show up the same way other adults in my life will. And I recognized that there is a certain pattern of how he wanted to show his love and care. And it was usually through material things. He wanted to show up with a bunch of gifts for my kids. And we're not really gift people. And there was a point when I was a parent 
that I realized he's never going to be able to show love the way I want him to. And if I can just accept that he's offering me love in his form, it was a really transformational shift where I used to get angry almost when he would show up with all these gifts because I was thinking of how he wasn't fulfilling my need. But instead, I was like delighted that like, isn't it nice that this is him showing up loving? So understanding how our family members can handle meeting us where we're at is kind of the key, right? Yeah. And I use animals all the time. Like you hear me talk about if I'm talking to a child about their big anxiety reaction, I show them that video of the cat that's to show the fight or flight. And it really is interesting sometimes when we talk about how animals show love in different ways. So say you had somebody who had a cat How does that cat show its affection? Well, compared to how your dog shows affection, it's very different, which I've never had a bird, but I would imagine that birds show affection in a different way. So what we can do, we can use metaphors and we can use those kinds of examples to really broaden the way, like you say, to broaden the means of connection, to broaden our bids of connection. There's differences in the way that we're raised. There are differences in the way that our families showed it. Some people learn it better than others. You, as a person, are very, very good at connecting by having difficult conversations, right? Like you're like, let's talk about it. Oh, me, yes. You, you, Robin, (laughs) right? You, right? You're very willing. Like, let's connect by having this difficult conversation. Can I talk about something that I know you would want to talk about? And I want to say that as a parent and as a wife... One of the things that I have learned, the most powerful thing I can leverage in connection with other people is my full attention. And I think that when we were talking about when our relationships might feel a little strained in in our families, well, you've talked about the therapist who recommends a daily walk, no screens. But even if it's like, let's just sit together 30 minutes and some people enjoy a glass of wine. We have this, we like Topo Chico. So we're like, let's have a glass of Topo Chico together. And just for 30 minutes, no screens, no interruptions, talk. Because I remember I was at Canyon Ranch, my first visit, the site of our retreats, actually, organic plug. <laughs> and she said, the most sensual thing you can actually give somebody is your complete attention and why that's so important for couples and why couples tend to be able to connect often outside the home more easily than in their daily routine at home. Yeah. Well, and I think that's often the case with friendships too. You know, if we talk about the loneliness and feeling connected to friends, that often is the case. I mean, when I go hiking with my friends, which is one of the activities that I love to do and I love to do with my friends, it's just the two of us, my friend Christine, who I talk about all the time, We went for a hike. So she picks me up at my house. We drive to the White Mountains. We hike all day. We get back to the car. We drive home. We were together for 10 hours, we calculated, and we did not stop talking. And it was the full attention. We were having conversations for 10 hours, and it was just so wonderful. There was no distraction. I mean, there were other people around. Hello. Nice. You know, hi, hi, hi. But it was 10 hours of she giving me her full attention and vice versa. It was just so nice. How full did you feel after that too? Oh, just as full as can be. Yeah. Yeah. We were kind of surprised, but not really. 
We're like, we just talked for 10 hours. I think that probably one of the things that makes people feel lonely, if we're talking about loneliness in relationships, is that we don't set aside that time or we don't engage in activities in which we're really talking to each other. I would agree. And I would say that you don't actually have to make that connection with someone in your family or one of your close friends. Because since I am a little extroverted, a little, a little, I've had phenomenal connecting conversations with people outside of my home and like normal daily things. If you're sitting next to someone on an airplane or another mom at a playground or whatever, I've had incredible conversations that weren't about the weather. Right. Yeah. I'm not very good at talking about the weather, except with my (laughs) friend who's a meteorologist. (laughs) So I think that that's important to note that that connection can be found kind of wherever you look for it. Yes. And you can practice it. I think maybe what would be helpful, and maybe we should take a break and I can come back and talk about this, is what are the things, if you are seeking connection, if you are somebody listening to this and feeling like, oh God, I am lonely or I have struggled with loneliness, maybe we come back and I'm going to give you some of my tried and true tips for being able to step into that connection place and maybe help you with your loneliness. You just gave a great one. I got some more too. Well, I just would want to point out that you or I have definitely experienced loneliness, despite the fact that we're extroverts, despite the fact that we sort of aren't shy and we reach out and we have relationships. Loneliness can happen to everyone. Yep. It can happen to everyone. And it can happen in one group and not another group. Absolutely. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. 
Okay, so now back to the show. Okay, so you were just saying that loneliness happens to everybody, so then... <laughs> I'm just having like this, I'm going through the sad reel of my life of all the times I was rejected and felt lonely. We talked about one of them in the previous loneliness episode, but man, there's a lot of them, aren't they? I mean, we all have those periods of just feeling disconnected and lonely. I think we were all seeking connection. And I think that we've talked about this in other episodes, when other people are reaching for connection, whether it's just like normal connection or romantic connection, everyone's ultimately rooting for everybody else. This is a human need. Right. It is a basic human need. I mean, as I've said many times, when we want to torture somebody, we put them in solitary confinement. We are hardwired. We are social beings. We are hardwired to connect. And when this is disrupted, when we can't get it, when we're seeking it and it's not there, it's incredibly painful and incredibly common. Well, I want to share a quick thing that just before the pandemic, I was at a job so we hadn't done the podcast yet, but I was really diving into your work and what you teach. Anxiety is an internalizing disorder and how do we disrupt patterns? There was a woman I knew who was pretty wound up and I had just seen the Mr. Rogers movie and I saw her at work and I knew she was in this state. I could tell because she was pretty frantic all the time. So I reached out and I sat down with her with 100% of my attention and had a conversation to see her shoulders drop. I can't remember what we were talking about specifically, but my goal was, I can tell she's spinning. And if I offer her connection right now, will that disrupt her pattern? You know, I wanted to do it to be a nice person. It worked. And then at the end, her facial expression was totally different. I felt great too. And it just showed how nice that can be. Yeah. So as you describe that, that's my professional life, right? People walk in here spinning and then they get an hour, at least an hour of my full attention. And my goal is for them to feel differently when they leave. Well, I could do it for like five minutes. So I really admire you. Yeah. Well, I get paid too. But that's really what my hope is. That's what my job is. I remember somebody saying early in my career, this other therapist saying, you know what? If I don't make my client cry, I don't feel like it was a successful session. Whoa. And I was like, whoa, that's effed up, man. Yeah. Well, as you say that, I now sort of realize why a lot of clinicians would not say what you just said about your job, which is a shame. Yeah. My job is not to increase your distress. It's to increase your sense of connection. And it might be with me. But oftentimes, I am a significant person that is modeling connection for them. I was talking, I do these really fun groups with educators, a lot of school counselors, and I was just doing one this morning. And one of the school counselors was just describing a very, very difficult situation that she's dealing with. And I said to her, I know you're trying to fix this and you're trying to figure out what you're supposed to say and how you're supposed to handle the parents, et cetera, et cetera. When this kid comes into school... You're her connection. She is coming to see you and feel connection. And that counts towards so much, right? I mean, you can try and figure out how to solve all these problems, which most of them, the school counselor was not going to be able to solve. But it really was about this kid coming in and making a bid for connection and being pretty vulnerable and telling the school counselor things that she wasn't talking about with other people. It's really pretty amazing. I love what 
you said because, and I also love the fact that you said this, so many people in our listenership are school counselors and nurses and teachers and other clinicians. And to really think of their job as, I guess, you know, I'm a lay person. So I sort of always thought it was like, how do you teach skills about self-awareness or whatever? I don't really think of it as like the gift that you're giving, but the gift of attention, the gift of connection that you're giving is modeling and teaching at the same time, the most important base skills. I think that's so cool. Well, part of it is you think about anxiety and depression are internalizing disorders, right? That means we do them on the inside. So if somebody comes for therapy, I don't want to go inside and just spend all the time inside. We need to get them externally connected. We need to get them outside of their heads, not deeper in their heads. So a lot of times it is really about how do I help you connect? When you leave here, how do I help you develop the relationships and the connections that you are seeking? I feel like that's a lot of what I do. With anxious people and depressed people, they are pulled inside themselves. They're like turtles with their heads inside their shells. And I am trying to get them to open up and and look around and see what the world offers because the world is a scary place for them. Right. And I can think of what person I know and the temptation is you just can think you're, if you think hard enough and long enough, you talk about this in the anxiety audit, but if you just think long enough and hard enough, you're going to think your way out of. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You've got to connect with other people. The thing that disrupts our patterns, particularly if they're internal patterns, is having some outside influence come in there and shake them up, right? So imagine that you're just sitting on your couch all day thinking about what ugly loser you are or how you're incompetent or how this or how that, and you don't go out into the world to get any evidence to the contrary. And then finally, you go out into the world and somebody is like, hey, I love your shoes or God, you did a great job on that or hey, I read that poem that you wrote. I mean, there's just all of these ways in which we make people feel connected. We were going to come back from the break and I was going to give some tips. Here's the first tip is that if you are feeling lonely and if you are feeling disconnected, there is a good chance that you are spending a lot of time inside of yourself talking to you about you and not getting any outside input, outside evidence, outside contact. It is really, really helpful if you are feeling lonely to find a way to give of yourself. Because loneliness, we think of loneliness as I need somebody to fill up my emptiness. But there's an interesting thing that happens when we take ourselves and we offer that to other people. Yes. Metaphorically speaking, you are going to offer, yeah. I mean, and that's why we know, as I've said so many times, that volunteerism is such a great way to deal with depression and to deal with loneliness, is that you're offering something of yourself. And then, of course, you get feedback that does fill you up, that does help break that pattern. The other tip, too, is that I want people to recognize that there are different levels of connection. And sometimes when I'm talking to somebody who's lonely, they will say to me, well, you know what? I am just not going to engage in small talk. I'm just not going to, like, that is just so superficial, and I really want to have deep and meaningful connection, and I'm not going to do that. Well, the reality of it is that there are many, many people in the world that I am going to only engage in small talk with, that there are very few people in this world that I am going to get into the deepest, most meaningful conversations. But the way that I found those people is I started with small talk. 
My friend Christine, who I talked to for 10 hours straight, when we first met each other, it was small talk. It was figuring out what we had in common. It was chit chat. We didn't dive right into, you know, the frustration we felt of being parents or we didn't dive right into whatever it is that we talked about for 10 hours this summer. Give yourself the chance to engage in small talk because that's the door that opens things. And when you shut that down and when you say you're not going to do that, you're missing out on opportunities. And then closely related to this is that... I totally get that if you've experienced loneliness for a period of time, if you grew up lonely, if you feel like you don't fit in, if you tried to connect and it hasn't worked, that it's really easy for you to give up. One of the things I hear actually when I'm talking to young adults that are struggling with this is that they really believed that that they in their youth were going to make their strongest connections. This even happens to kids when I say kids, but they're young adults like that are juniors or seniors in college. And they're feeling kind of hopeless about the fact that they don't have really strong connections because their perception based on social media, based on popular culture, based on movies, based on songs, is that this is where you make all the strongest connections. I am here to tell you, if you are listening to this, is that incredibly strong, powerful, genuine, deep, vulnerable connections are possible at any time in your life. And the goal at this point is to keep at it and to really work on recognizing what you say to yourself that keeps you from taking that risk. Now, I use the word risk on purpose because it is absolutely risky to put yourself out there because there is a risk that you will suffer rejection again. There is a risk that you may do a bid for connection and it gets rebuffed. This is a risky thing, but you've got to be patient and you've got to be consistent and you've got to find your tribe. Just like I said with the kids, the more you increase the traffic flow of different people coming in and out of your orbit, the more likely it is that you're going to find people that you can connect with. Be patient. Relationships develop over time. There's a lot of myths about relationships. Oh, we met in one second. We knew we were going to be best friends. We just hit it off. I hear that all the time. That's not generally the case. So give yourself some time. Be patient and allow yourself to take the risk. I know it's risky, but you've got to recognize that this is something that's an active process that you work on over time. So one thing I think is interesting, and obviously I can't pose this question back to you Mm -hmm. because your family is also my family now and people listen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, people. (laughs) Right. But one thing that I will say that I think is kind of my life experience is that when I was growing up, I definitely didn't have a lot in common with my other family members. So I always had this thing of like, I was a little different than most of the people in my family. It was still a very loving family. So I I will say that. However, as I got older, and I was a college student or a young adult, While I never really liked our family's dinner conversation around the table, it was like too banal to me. We never talked about anything that I would consider real or important the way I sought friends who did like talking about that sort of stuff. So I made an effort while I did not like our family's culture 
I remember individually making an effort to get to know each of my family members as a person on their own. And I would say that you're never too old to start those types of relationships where you seek out those one-on-one connections. Yeah. I think that happens a lot with siblings. You know, there are so many dynamics in a family with siblings. And then once you're out on your own and you begin to figure out who you are and you have connections that are separate from that whole family unit, I think that absolutely happens for sure. The earlier, the better, but it's never too late. And seeking connection and finding people that have things that, that you have in common, that are interesting to you, people that you just enjoy being around, it's an active process. And you can keep adding people. You can get rid of people. That's the other thing about connection. You don't have to hang on to somebody if it's just not working, right? You could let a friendship go as you grow out of it. But loneliness, remember, it's a perception that everybody has what you want and that you can't get it. And I want you to, you know, if you're listening to this and you feel like you are feeling lonely or if you felt lonely, I want you to just recognize that one, you're not alone in your loneliness, ironically, but it is about bids for connection. And you're going to have to force yourself sometimes to do it, even when you don't feel like it. There's a big payoff. So, Lynn, speaking of connection, are you up to date on Ted Lasso? Oh, I'm so up to date. So, we're recording this on a Thursday. So, yesterday I'm going through my day, and then all of a sudden I was like, it's Ted Lasso Day. I was so excited. So, yeah. For those who watched it before, I thought this season started really, really lame. And I thought, oh, they lost it. But I promise it picks up. Yeah. I didn't think that it started lame. But then once you told me that you thought it started lame, then I was sort of feeling like maybe did it start lame? I'm not sure, but I don't care. And I love Roy Kent and I can't get enough of Brett is going around doing the guy who plays Roy Kent is going around doing all these interviews. And he did this great interview on I think on Seth Meyers, maybe. Oh, no, no, no. On Stephen Colbert, where he's talking about his mom, texting his mom while his mom was watching him in some movie. Yeah. So my sister said that maybe he's taking the place of Hugh Grant in our hearts because we have this thing for Hugh Grant. Oh, wow. If he only knew what a compliment that was based on how big that place in your heart is. (laughs) It's a big place. Okay. Yeah. So one of the things I also want to mention, and this is a shameless plug, is that connection is something that we all need. And actually, I think when we have done our retreats, we're doing our fourth retreat, our third mom's retreat at Canyon Ranch this fall. That's always what the people write on the surveys at the end, is that it was just very meaningful for them to walk right into an automatic community where everyone was really connecting on an authentic space. And that's what I love about them too. There's not a lot of small talk. It's like real stuff, which is really awesome. Yeah. It's like, hi, we're here. Okay. Share, go, vulnerability. Yeah. (laughs) Well, not quite. It's all about yoga. Yeah. (laughs) No, we don't even have yoga, but no, it's good. It is good. And I think it's just everyone is eager for connection. I think that's another great thing. People are ready to share and and feel good sharing too. Yes, yes, it is. They're very fulfilling, I think, in that way. And it's nice. I feel like we've made some, you know, I hear from the people that have been at the retreats. I feel like we've made some really nice 
connections with people. I wonder if people are still in touch from the retreats. Well, some friends have attended together and some moms have come too. So we know those definitely are. The retreat is November 2nd through 5th at Canyon Ranch in Lenox, Massachusetts this fall. And I've sent out a save the date if you're on our retreat mailing list. And we will go live with registration sometime in May, which is coming up. So we hope you consider joining us. Okay. So if you get to do a shameless plug, then I get to do one too. Oh, definitely. Okay. So Anxious Nation, which if you're on my Facebook or Instagram, you're seeing me plug all the time. It's being released. So there's the virtual event on May 3rd in which you will see me between Kathy Ireland and Dr. Shafali, right? So one of these things is not like the other. You guys can figure that out. But if you are in the Concord area, so those of you Concord, New Hampshire, I know we have listeners from all over. But we are doing a showing in Concord on May 11th. It is free. It is open to the public. We're going to do a panel discussion afterwards. So I will certainly post that on my Facebook page as well. So May 3rd is the global virtual event with all the fancy people. And then May 11th is the down hometown Concord, New Hampshire premiere screening with yours truly. And where is that screening? At Red River Theater on Main Street in Concord. And the doors open at five and the show starts at six and it's free, 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 free. There's a chance that might fill up actually. Yes. So you should be there on the early side. And then if it sells out and you can't get a seat, you can connect with someone else who didn't get a seat. (laughs) Go to the bookstore, have a coffee together. You can register ahead of time too. So I'll post that link as well on my Facebook page and we can even see if we can put it in the show notes. But if you go to Red River Theater, you'll be able to get tickets ahead of time. It's like an exciting month. And actually, as we're going into May, you always talk about May being one of the most challenging months for families. So how about a little bit of a, first of all, why? And then second of all, how about a little May pep talk? Yeah. So one of the reasons that May is so challenging is because for one, the grownups are psyched that it's May. You're like, yay, it's May. And it's sort of the end of the school year and everybody's got, you know, spring fever and yay, it's May. But also at the end of the school year, if you have a little child or even a big child who tends to be a little worried, May is the time of year in the school year where all the change is talked about, but it's still very abstract. The end of the school year, we're going to say goodbye. We start having end of the year rituals. The teachers start taking down the bulletin boards. We're talking about going to the next school. You're having your visiting day in your classroom and the little anxious people amongst us don't like all of the uncertainty. So there's a lot of energy, a lot of juice that goes into May, and it sort of gets things a little revved up in a way that's surprising. So now you've been warned, if things are a little wonky in May, take a deep breath and just remember that it's normal and you want to talk to your kids about how normal it is to feel uncertain when all of this change is being talked about. It's totally normal. That's my pep talk. Was it peppy enough? Yeah, it was very smart. I mean, how peppy can you be if you're like, okay, so some of your households are going to be going through a lot of crazy stuff. Right. So that's why I did say take a deep breath. But just know that it's normal. Just know that it's normal. So this is your little dose of it's going to be okay, people. This is the of course talk. Maybe we shouldn't have said it was a pep talk. Maybe that was asking too much. Yeah. Okay. All right. So there you go, people. We got a lot of stuff happening in May. A lot of stuff. You can do it. 
If this episode was helpful to you, you can join our Facebook community and we'd love it if you left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Flusterclucks. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play, and we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.